This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, February 13th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today on what was a very busy news weekend, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will offer up some insight and a recap on three major news stories, including the resignation of Toronto Mayor John Tory. Marco Pasqua will share his thoughts on Accessibility Standards Canada's accessibility plan. And Netflix is cracking down on account sharing with a new update, Mark around password way in about an hour and 20 minutes but the show begins with the top story of the day and that continues to be healthcare. federal officials continue meetings with the provinces to discuss health care funding today rob westgate looks ahead Jean-Yves Duclos and Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc will sit down in Halifax with Premier Tim Houston and Health Minister Michelle Thompson. Last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tabled a new health funding offer to the provinces and territories with the promise of adding $46 billion to expected federal health transfers over the next 10 years. But that deal comes with strings attached and the provinces have to agree to show how they will spend the money and how they'll measure progress in key areas. Areas like family doctors, surgical backlogs, and mental health. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. In other federal news, a multi-million dollar federal contract to provide mental and physical health services for veterans is facing some criticism. The $570 million contract with partners in Canadian Veterans Rehabilitation Services is meant to offer better services to veterans. But psychotherapist Alicia Henson says awareness about services is the big issue. I had called my community of mental health providers together to say, who's heard of the program? Who knows what's happening? My first shock was that people who had been doing this work way longer than I have had, had zero understanding of it and didn't even know it was coming. In another federal story, there are concerns being raised with the organization hired to investigate unmarked graves at former residential schools. Stephanie Taylor has that story. Kimberly Murray says she's raised concerns directly with Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller on his department's decision to hire the International Commission on Missing Persons. The organization is based in The Hague and specializes in identifying the remains of those who have been killed or gone missing in major conflicts and disasters. The group is set to go on a cross-country outreach campaign with Indigenous communities and report back to government. But Murray says she's concerned because they lack experience working with residential school survivors and with Indigenous laws. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And one story from economics for you. The European Union has released an updated economic forecast. Charles de Ledesma takes a closer look. 
The Executive Commission has raised its economic growth forecast for the year, now up to 0.8% for the 20 countries using the euro currency. That means the Commission expects the eurozone to scrape by without a technical recession in 2023. But things are not great either. Inflation may have passed its peak, but it's still high at 8.5%. That's going to keep holding back consumer spending. And the European Central Bank, the ECB, is raising interest rates, a step that's aimed at getting inflation down, but also makes it more expensive to get credit for purchases or business expansion. I'm Charles de Ledesma. That's your look at the news. It's time for the daily polls. Lots of Super Bowl talk to get to and reactions. Let's begin with the results from Friday's poll when you were asked, what is the best Super Bowl snack? 17% of you said chicken wings. I had a few of those last night. 33% of you said nachos. I had a few of those last night. 42% of you said pizza. I'm going to have some of that today for recovery purposes. And 8% of you said chili. So 8% of you have really good taste. Didn't get my hands on any chili last night, but maybe, maybe today or tomorrow, we can uh, chase down some chili as well. Today's daily poll, it's not just a yes, no question about the Super Bowl, but it's framed that way. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Yes, all of it. Just Rihanna? Just the ads? Or no? Of course, you can vote on the polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. My big reaction to the Super Bowl is if you started watching the Super Bowl last night at 6 p.m. Eastern time when really the anthems got going into the coin toss, into the game, through to the last whistle, it was pretty much the perfect four-hour TV broadcast. The game was excellent, so for football fans, that was great. The American National Anthem that was sung by Chris Stapleton was incredible. I thought Babyface's performance of God Bless America was also, or America the Beautiful, was also just wonderful. Rihanna's halftime show was very, very good. I don't know if it was the best of all time. Prince and Bruno Mars and Katy Perry would have something to say about that. But it was really, really good. The choreography and the dancing was amazing. And again, the football was good. The football came down to the last play of the game, which is all you can want for. And it was just kind of wacky enough. There were some great plays offensively, some great defensive plays. It was just a phenomenal four hours. Mike Ross, you are a big football fan and generally a consumer of the product. What did you think of the Super Bowl last night? Well, let me preface this, Dave, by saying if you need a chili fix and you can make your way here, I still have plenty of chili left oh, from yesterday. Oh, heck yeah. And I did not make my usual chili dogs. So chili dogs are a possibility today as oh. well with a side of uh, a few leftover matzo sticks and deep fried pickles. Oh, so Mike I'm Ross. Just putting it out there. Mike Ross knows how to live. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> um, so I I watched um the game, got to it a little um a little late. I think we got literally turned it on for kickoff. Okay. Uh so I didn't get any of the pregame festivities. Um I did manage at one point to to hear some of the introductions, um, but otherwise we picked it up on kickoff. And for all kinds of reasons, I just wasn't into the football. I, I wasn't into I, I'm not into either team. And it it was to me, I, I kind of joked to my wife, 
with the the scoring back and forth, back and forth, I said, it feels like we're watching a basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so much scoring um, that I kind of just went, you know, once it was 21-14, it was like, eh. And then I got into a couple of phone calls um, with, uh, with some family. And at that point, when I finally came back to it, um, we were so far out of the game that it was like, eh, whatever, let's just eat. And I came back to the game when it was tied with four minutes and change left. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it till the end. Um, not a big fan of, of, uh, of how it ended because I thought the, the penalty, with all the, pe- the yeah. penalties that get called in an NFL season, like I'm a big Buffalo bills fan. You know, we talk about bills, dolphins all the time. Sure do. When I think about some of the penalties that I've seen called just this season or, or penalties not called that one really was like a sore thumb. It stuck out. Yeah, let, stuck out. let me describe that one in case people yeah. in, case, in case people weren't watching the game. Essentially, there was a defensive holding call with about, uh, let's call it a minute left on the clock or a minute and 30 left on the clock where defensive back James Bradbury maybe just barely grazed the body of the wide receiver and it was called holding for a tug on yeah. the jersey. It was, it was borderline. By the book, it was a holding call. But really, considering that that game was very physical and they let the players play it yeah. seemed weird the flag came out in that moment the, 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 that's the, why... that the agenda had been set to sort of say we're going to let you have a very physical football game and then in a key moment yeah. you weren't allowed to have physicality i i do not ever want to see officiating pivot that way in a game if you're calling it one way then call it that way the whole time, which is why like, I have a lot of respect for baseball umpires because generally speaking, uh, uh, especially when they're behind home plate, an umpire has his zone. Now his strike zone might be a little bit bigger than the guy you had yesterday and might be a little bit smaller than the guy you'll get tomorrow. But generally speaking, a baseball umpire has his zone and will stick with it through the day. Mm-hmm. It may not be the strike zone that you want called, but if he calls it consistently for both sides and sticks with it for every inning of a game, I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the NHL, the NFL, where they talk about, you know, let the players decide, let the players, you know, decide the game. I have argued in the past that if you commit an infraction as a player, you you are deciding the game. You, you are committing a foul mm-hmm. and therefore should be penalized. But I also think that if you've called basically 94% of a football game one way and suddenly you you make a really hard left turn, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And 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 for me, you know, the 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 Super Bowl, though I'm usually a bigger fan of the Grey Cup because usually it's a more exciting game. This could have been exciting. We could have had overtime. Yes. That would have been exciting. Yes. It didn't need that call to to be made at that point so from that standpoint um you know i wasn't uh, i wasn't hugely impressed uh with it okay but, uh, so so what i thought was a, else so what i thought was a perfect tv broadcast you never quite got into last night you know i did not and you know what there's you. yeah there's all kinds of personal reasons you know it's it a tough weekend around our place so you know it wasn't i i just wasn't into it and, and i think ultimately dave my team wasn't in it yeah my yeah. team had a tough exit and a tough end to their Mike, season. Try being a Dolphins fan my entire I, I adult hear you, life. Buddy. My team's never in it. 
I hear you, but I think it, it, it there were no there were no storylines that really sort of brought me in. And I, you know, with hockey, it's a little bit different because it seems like almost every year the team that's making it to the Stanley Cup final there's at least one of the teams where you're thinking, even if that's not my team. You know, I want him to win it for yeah. Ray Bork. Yeah. I want him to win it for Dave Andrichuk, right? In this case, it was like, eh, Mahomes is, he's won it and he's great. And the injury and, and he played through it and everything else. Um, and, and the Philadelphia story was, was a good one, but there was nothing to me that was monumental. Oh, and by the way, those Fox broadcasters, meh. Okay, wow. Going after, Kevin, little... going after Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson. Yeah, They're taking yeah, sprays like, this morning. I, I, I like Tony Romo. I like Jim Nance. Oh, um, oh I'm going to disagree with you. I'd much rather I'm an Olsen. Al Michaels guy. I, I would Huge. Much, I would much rather Olsen and Burkhart call a game than oh. Nance and Romo. That's a brutal booth right now. Like, oh, unwatchable. Buddy. Unwatchable, those two oh, at this buddy, point. Buddy, buddy, buddy. We are going to agree to disagree. <laughs> I'm throwing a flag on the play. Yeah. Encroachment on my opinion <laughs> on the offense. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, I, I, I do like Al Michaels. I miss the Al Michaels. Oh, uh, so do Collins, I. The Allensworth, uh, Allensworth, the Al Michaels, Chris Collinsworth booth is a great, great football booth, and I they miss were. that one. Yeah. Yeah, I miss, I mean, Al Michaels to me, I'm reading, I, I, reading his book, uh, which is just full of great stories, but that that duo, the two of them together, and I know that there are people who are going to disagree with this one. Uh I do like Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. I like, I like that booth too. Yeah, I, mean, I, do, I enjoy yeah. that booth. Yeah. So I did, and and I'm not saying that 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 the 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 guys in the booth last night didn't do a, a a good job of calling the game. It was nice and clean. They weren't stepping on each other or anything like that. I just found them kind of, I don't know, kind of bland. A little vanilla. To, yeah. Yeah, a little vanilla compared to what you get from a Troy Aikman or a Tony Romo. Those two guys, those are big personalities. Yeah. And Olsen, to me, he gives you good analysis, but but that personality personality doesn't really jump out at you. And I think when you're doing, especially the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. where there's a whole bunch of people that are watching it that are not fans of either team. Anywhere that you can inject a little bit of energy and personality is important. And and I thought that that, that sort of lacked uh, for me anyway as a, as a fan. But it's not like I sat there and said, oh, I can't yeah. listen to these guys. I'm turning it off. Um, it, it wasn't anything like that. Well, but well, if you Mike, were to give me my choice, I, I would have gone with somebody else. Well, Mike, you won't have to worry because uh, Tom Brady's taking over the Greg Olson role. Uh, probably oh, not this year, but the next year his Fox contract starts. Well, so then I do have to worry, moves. Dave. <laughs> I do have to worry because it means I probably won't be watching. Unless, he's, unless he blows me away and I can forget about all the times that – Tom Brady just crushed my dreams as a Bills fan. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Oh, my gosh. Mike, thank you for this. Uh, we'll talk to you in just a moment for the National Weather Update. In the meantime, yeah. Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you vote on the poll. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Yes, all of it. Just Rihanna. Just the ads. Or no, I didn't make mention of all the ads that I liked, but uh, the Doritos ad, the Breaking Bad Doritos ad with uh, Walter White, Jesse Pinkman, and Tuco. Incredible. Mwah. Beautiful ad right there for Doritos. So well done by uh, Pepsi on that front. At Accessible Media Inc. on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. That's where you vote on the polls. Speaking to Mike yet again for the National Weather Updates. 
Thank you, Dave. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We begin in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it'll be sunny today and a mix of sun and cloud through the afternoon. Your high minus 2, the wind chill minus 10. In Halifax, increasing cloudiness and snow this afternoon between 2 and 4 centimeters. The high is plus 2, the wind chill minus 7. In Montreal, sunshine, clouds rolling in through the midday. The high is plus 2, the wind chill is minus 14. In Ottawa, increasing cloudiness through the day, a high of plus 3 and a wind chill of minus 10. In Toronto, clouds rolling in through the morning, the fog though rolling out later on in the morning and a high of 7 degrees. In Thunder Bay, it'll be mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of flurries, your high is plus 3, your wind chill minus 7. Let's go to Winnipeg next, where clouds will roll in throughout the day. Your high is plus one. Your wind chill is minus 14. In Saskatoon, it'll be mainly sunny with a high of plus three and a wind chill of minus eight. To Calgary, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of eight degrees. Moving north to Edmonton, flurries ending early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud and a high of plus five. In Yellowknife, clearing skies. The temperature will fall to minus 31 this afternoon and your wind chill this afternoon minus 37 that of course comes with a risk of frostbite and to british columbia and vancouver it'll be clearing skies once you get through to the midday and your high is eight degrees victoria will have a mix of sun and cloud and a high of eight and that was your ami national weather report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up next, we look to the skies with flying objects being shot down all over and around North America. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will take a look at some of the news stories emanating beyond the clouds. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It was a busy weekend in the world of news. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig can shed some light on a few of the big stories. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, it was another weekend where North Americans had their eyes to the sky with a number of indeed fly- <laughs> with a number of flying <laughs> objects being shot down, including one in the Yukon. Michelle, this story could go a lot of different ways, but what is some of the important background? All right. The important background is that this has all been sort of stemming from the earlier suspected Chinese balloon incident. This is how it's sort of being called in shorthand. You might recall that in the early, early part of February, uh, there was a balloon floating over the United States for quite some time. It passed into Canadian airspace as well that China claimed was a weather balloon that had been blown off course. It was eventually shot down over South Carolina on February 4th. And then that was kind of it for for that, although there were lots of questions stemming from that incident. <laughs> there sure out. were. There sure were. <laughs> Uh, Well, just imagine how they might have amplified now after a weekend in which we had three objects in three days, all shot down over the skies. Like you said, Dave, one was shot down over Yukon on Saturday afternoon, and that led to a a busy afternoon and evening on on the news coverage front. But there were other ones on Friday and Sunday as well in the United States. The one on Friday was shot down over Alaska, and the one yesterday was shot down over Lake Huron. So. Mm 
now uh, they say three is a trend and now we're at four. So mm-hmm. make up that what you will. So, so a lot of the politics around this can vary. Ultimately, it was the American military and NORAD that took these objects down, but different politicians had different discretion points on this. So how are politicians reacting to this now what we call a trend? Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, the, the the balloon over Yukon was shot down on the prime minister's orders, and and President Biden in the United States has been the one ordering the shoot downs of of the objects flying over the United States. There's a lot of unanimity between. United States and Canada, which makes sense since we're both part of NORAD and that's who's coordinating a lot of this. Uh, so lots of mutual support for governments taking action on these things, cooperation on the military level with both Canadian and American fighter jets going up to, to, to scramble and intercept these things, mm-hmm. um, although it was the American planes that shot them down. Um, so lots of cooperation on, on the official fronts there, but of course there there are lots and lots of questions now. We have not established Chinese involvement in the in the past three objects that have been discovered, although the officials in Canada and the U.S. are saying that they certainly look like they're similar. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's law that's inflaming all kinds of tensions there as we try to find out exactly what's going on. And of course, you also have opposition calls in both countries for firmer action. They're saying that you know China's out of control, that there needs to be more done to protect residents and and protect northern um, northern defense is yeah. another issue that's been coming up a lot now too. People are calling for a refresh of northern defense systems, which which are old and which there is a project underway to refurbish. But uh, a lot of people are feeling an increased sense of urgency around that conversation now. Yeah, Arctic sovereignty is something that is always bubbling underneath the surface in a lot of these questions in terms of operational capacity. And this really speaks to that, the conversations around what is sovereignty and what does it take to have sovereignty and how much foreign influence, if it is indeed foreign influence, are you willing to tolerate in regards to your air sovereignty and your airspace? (laughs) Exactly. And it's it now it's, at this point, it's not even about influence. It's more about espionage. That's the yeah. concern now yeah. with, with these balloons. So it's even a, a step back from that. Uh, so, so even a, a more fundamental element of that conversation is taking place right now. Right? Mich- Michelle, before UFOs were grasping the headlines in the Toronto area, just as the weekend was kicking off, Toronto Mayor John Tory resigned. Now, uh, the lawyers are listening closely to how we do this. What is the reportable information on this one? Because this is when things can get a little bit uh, scandalous. Well, uh, what happened is on Friday night, the Toronto Star began publishing an investigation about what they had uh, heard was purported inappropriate relationship in the mayor's office with a staffer who was about 31 years old. The mayor is 68. and He's been married for 40 plus years. And very shortly after that report was published, we got a notice that there was going to be a news conference in 40 minutes time. This happens on occasion. You get... uh, very, very last-minute notices and very big news because what happened when everyone arrived was that the mayor stood up and acknowledged that relationship. Um, he said it ended by mutual consent. He said it took place during the pandemic when he was apart from his wife for long stretches of time. Uh, he said that she, or he said that the person involved was no longer in his office, uh, that, that she'd moved on and gotten other employment elsewhere. And then the real bombshell there was, well, there's, Admitting the relationship was was surprising enough given the brand that Tory had cultivated over time, and we can come back to that. But then he announced that he was going to step down. He wanted to. Uh, he said he wanted to focus on rebuilding trust with his family. Uh, so there we are. That was that was a real shocker because he had just been reelected 
did uh, municipal elections took place in October, mm-hmm. and he cruised it like it was it was not even close. Uh, he he had more than sixty percent of the vote in Toronto. The closest runner up had eighteen percent. Uh, so th- this was a real shocker, not only in terms of the timing, but in the election just happened. The city budget's about to come down this week, and that's always a huge, important process. But also just because of the kind of reputation that John Tory had worked so hard to build yeah. and and had partially run on as well in light of the fact that he was a successor to Rob Ford. Uh, keeping in mind that this is a national television show and Toronto politics is not exactly mm-hmm. the most interesting thing for somebody who might be listening in Saskatchewan this morning. I think, I think the interesting question is this. What happens now politically when it comes to naming a new mayor? What's that actual, what, what does that actually look like? Yeah, well, that is a bit of a process. The Coles Notes version is that John Tory currently is still the mayor because he has not formally offered a letter of resignation. That's expected to happen anytime soon. And once council declares the mayor's office vacant, uh, there will be an interim mayor. Presumably the deputy will be appointed to fill those shoes until an election is called. So they're going to have to have another election. People are going to have to mount mayoral campaigns again. That's going to take place within about 60 days of the mayor's office being declared vacant. Oh, so wow. probably within the next six to eight weeks, we'll be uh, having okay. another mayoral election. Back yeah. to the polls, keeping the poll Indeed. workers busy. Well done. Michelle, one more story to talk about here. And Brock Richardson and I will get into some of the nuts and bolts of this in the sports chat a bit later. But this is a big national news story. There was some mm-hmm. labor strife. A fascinating one, too. Yeah, there was some labor strife. What happened with the Canadian women's soccer team? Well, what happened is that they're about to play in a tournament called the She Believes Cup. Terrible branding. uh, You you said it, not me. Okay. But I'm nodding over here. Okay. Um, (laughs) Like, really? Anyway, this tournament was about to take place, um, or is going to be taking place in the coming weeks. And there's been long, long simmering labor issues that essentially boil down to matters of equity. The women's team says Soccer Canada does not deliver nearly the same degree of support to the women's team as the men receive. Uh, they they don't get they don't get paid anywhere near the same. We're talking about disparities of almost twice as much, possibly a quarter if you factor in own the podium funding. Um, there's just a lot of major major inequities as they see it in the ways the, that Canada Soccer approaches both teams and it's worth noting that they have firm firm backing from the men on this one there's no infighting mm-hmm. in that respect there the issue is entirely with soccer canada so in preparation for the she believes cup there were practices and whatnot taking place and the women decided to boycott this as a form of protest they said that they'd sent a letter they'd been in negotiations for a long time but they hadn't received any action they still haven't been paid for anything from last year they're saying so they uh they boycotted practice and intended to keep doing so until they were, uh, they say, threatened with action. Soccer Canada uh, allegedly told them that if they don't go back, they're going to suffer all kinds of financial penalties, and they don't feel they're in a position to accept that risk, given that they haven't been paid for last year. Uh, Soccer Canada's public statements are a lot more conciliatory on that. You, you don't hear much about legal action. They, they talk about wanting to get it right, and that pay equity is going to be a pillar of any kind of new deal that gets put together. Um, but this is at an impasse at the moment. Uh, the women did go back to practice yesterday, and they are they have committed to playing this tournament. But 
uh, the the issues are not resolved, not by any stretch. And the women were very vocal and clear about the fact that they feel they're being forced back to work. Yeah, the pay equity side of this is not a new element of conversation. This has been uh, brewing for a while, both north and south of the border. The American women have been advocating for this for a long, long time in terms of some pay equity. And it's worth noting the Canadian men also had some labor strife in the fall mm-hmm. over s- over some uh, uh, not, not so much payments, but more so support economic support being offered uh, in terms of some facilities and other perks they felt they should be receiving. And one of the things they mentioned in their own labor strife, the men's side, was that they wanted pay equity for women, the women as well. And it's worth noting here that Canada qualifies for its first Men's World Cup last year, and Soccer Canada didn't have jerseys available on the website for sale the next day. So we're talking about this organization that 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 it's, it's perpetually cutting off its nose to spite its face. And the labor the labor side of this is we want more money, and the organization seems incapable of actually understanding how to generate revenue. It's 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 quite an interesting one, and there's a whole other subtext that's too complex to really get into here. But some of the issues also revolve around a corporate deal that Soccer Canada has going on and that that has they say has kind of limited their actions and tied their hands as their teams got really popular. Of course, you know, the men qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 36 years last year, but the women are established stars. These mm-hmm. are like re- repeat Olympic gold medalists. Christine Sinclair is practically a household name at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's worth comparing just to get a sense of the equity. The fact that we're talking about two World Cups. The Women's World Cup is going to happen in Australia this summer. So That's it's right. the yeah. exact equivalent tournament of the one that took place in Qatar for the men last year. Uh, just a couple of illustrative points. When the men were training for this, uh, they had all kinds of supports. They had a lot of money. They were able to fly business class. They had their own hotel rooms when they got there. The women are flying economy. They're sharing rooms, uh, all kinds of differences in the facilities. Part of what they're asking for, uh, among other pay equity-based issues, is the same degree of support for essentially the same tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Michelle, we'll, we'll talk more about this with Brock Richardson in about 45 minutes in the uh, sports chat. But thank you for laying out the uh, News Foundation on the story. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And my colleague, Neil Davidson, is doing great work on this. So if anyone wants to follow along, uh, he's a great place to start. Michelle, have a great day. Thanks, Dave. Take care. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Marco Pasqua will share his thoughts on the Accessibility Standards Canada Accessibility Plan. But first... Here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. It was steady as she goes on Friday as Bay Street sailed into the weekend with a minor gain on the headwinds provided by the industrials and energy sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX adding 14 points to close at 20,612. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fared a little bit better, gaining 169 points to close at 33,869. The Nasdaq, well, it slipped 71 points down to 11,718. Asian markets have dipped into the red this morning with Japan's Nikkei finishing down 244 points at 27,427. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong shed just 26 points settling at 21,164. Looking ahead this week, fourth quarter results are due out from TC Energy, Shopify and Air Canada, while home sales figures for January will be released on Wednesday. The loonie, it's trading at 74.84 cents US this morning. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob West. Gate. 
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Accessibility Standards Canada unveiled their accessibility plan in late December. It's all part of the process under the Accessible Canada Act. The plan includes areas like employment, the built environment, program delivery and communication. Marco Pasqua has some thoughts on this. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, good morning, Marco. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. So, Marco, before you share some thoughts on the content of the plan, what did you think of the way it was communicated and laid out? Yeah, well, so first and foremost, for those of you who don't know, um, just to give you some context, so um, Accessibility Standards Canada, um, you know, is working kind of directly with the individuals who are formulating the Accessible Canada Act. And it's to contribute to, as they say, a Canada without barriers by 2040. So it's not a uh, small task as no, we've been working at away at this for a long time. <laughs> And actually, they're expected to prepare and publish something about this plan every three years. I should note that this is initially for federally regulated organizations to begin with. But my hope as an accessibility consultant is that this is going to be rolled out to all businesses and services and areas where individuals access accessibility and access pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as how they laid it out initially, I really love how the plan is laid out. Uh, in plain language, which is really good because that's inclusive and accessible. Um, and they have it very simply done out in terms of an objective, a barrier, and the action at which they're going to take in order to accomplish those things. Um, as far as you know, gathering feedback, I know that they were really looking to different stakeholder groups, uh, representation across the disability spectrum, which is really, really great. And now that the plan has been released, um, at least the initial plan as of December of last year, um, they're also uh, actively taking in feedback from the community on their website so that if there isn't anything you uh, understand or you'd like clarity on you can provide feedback on that or even if you want some tweaks to what's been suggested so I, I do think that they're going about this the right way they're not rushing through it mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the most important part as you mentioned it was laid out in a very clear way you and I both took some time to uh, have a peek at it and it was very easy to understand as you say the structure of here's the barrier Here's our objective. Here's how we're going to get there. That just strikes me as really smart and really thoughtful and very targeted in the way it's being approached. There was one part that really stood out to me, but I am the gracious host of the show. So I want to give you first crack on what parts of the plan stood out to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm a huge proponent of inclusive and accessible employment. It's basically what I talk about mm. almost 24-7 when I'm not talking about my, my daughter. And um, I really love how, uh, for example, the objective is to enhance recruitment and retention of people with disabilities, for example. One of the barriers they listed, inflexible and often inaccessible applications for and the hiring procedure in government for people with disabilities. And one of the actions that they're going to take is application can, can submit documents in their uh, preferred format. I mean, uh, how do you, how else do you slice that or take that? I mean, it is what it is when you read it out like that. So if that's as clear as day as how they want to lay out this information, then sign me up, right? Because <laughs> if they can accomplish 
it as simply as they're laying it out, then this plan is going to be very solid for individuals with disabilities to not only have opportunities to work in government, but also have access to those services within government in a way that hopefully uh, makes a lot more sense and is way more accessible for so many more Canadians. The thing that jumped out to me relates to yours, at least a little bit, and that's the idea of procurement. And that strikes Mm -hmm. me as a big element of this, because how often do you hear that people should uh, speak with their wallets about what they do or don't like. And that stands Absolutely. for large institutions as well. So spending huge swaths of money on softwares, hardwares, and other supplies that aren't inclusive or accessible can really have a negative impact on the goal of making the workplace more inclusive or the institution more inclusive. So maybe I'm stretching, Marco. I don't know what you think, but what do you think? How big a factor is procurement in this broader conversation? I think it's one of the biggest factors, actually. If you don't have accessible software or the ways in which to access programs and services, then you're literally stopped at the door, right? If you if you can't actually access it, how are you supposed to know? So I think the procurement is one of the biggest areas. I do think that it means um, that individuals, Canadians, need to have access to the programs and services in a way that makes sense for them, whatever that looks like. And then, of course, the procurement aspect of once you're on the job site, do you have access to those same softwares or or services that actually support you in being able to do your job and do it well? Um, I feel like, um, you know, employers should be implored to really look at the opportunities, especially those who are federally uh, mandated at this time. Um, You're only benefiting yourself by making sure that everything that you utilize throughout the services that you offer makes sense and works for the employees that are working within your organization, because ultimately that means you're going to deliver a better product to whoever it is that you service, right? And so, I mean, I can say it that easily. You'd think that it would make (laughs) a lot of sense, uh, but sometimes it just, the wheels of government can turn a little bit slower. And I'm confident because I know that some of the committee members um, on the um, Accessibility Standards Canada uh, committee are are close personal friends of mine, you know? And so Mm. I I trust them uh, to really make sure that they're a voice uh, for the community. Marco, just a glance of your social media implies and shows you are a man who wears many hats and keeps very busy. Well, you sure. were recently named to the BC Employment Accessibility Standard Technical Committee. What are you expecting Thanks. to bring to that role? Yeah, so, I mean, quite simply, I have a responsibility just as I uh, named out to my colleagues over there in Accessible uh, Standards Canada uh, to make sure that the BC plan is rolled out just as smoothly. Um, And in my technical committee is uh, specific on inclusive employment and employment of people with disabilities. So uh, I'm going to definitely practice what I preach and get out there and make sure that the learnings that I've gathered and the best practices that I've gathered from from, uh, inclusive leaders and inclusive organizations that I've had the pleasure of working with, um, that organizations um, across my province um, who are federally regulated uh, or provincially regulated rather, um, have the opportunity to to really have access to, an, as I always say, an untapped talent source of individuals with disabilities. And the only way that we're going to do that is this: if we lay it out very simply and say, listen, 
we've fallen short um, in many governments um, to, to be there for persons with disabilities in a way that is meaningful. So what can we do within these committee roles to ensure that that doesn't happen again? And if we want to truly be accessible by 2040, we got to really roll up our sleeves here, Dave, mm. and we got, we got some work to do. But I do think that it is possible. Um, let me preface this by, by the sense, sense that I feel you're never going to truly be 100% accessible to everyone because it's a balancing act where you make a change in one area Area, you may impact another area, but I think the important factor is, is the being cognizant of that. How do every single decision that we make and the choices that we make impact one area or another? And for me, just because I'm a mobility device user and I have a physical disability, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be looking at all aspects of disability to ensure my friends and colleagues have the same rights and um, equal treatment as everybody else. So I'm really excited to dive into it. Our first technical subcommittee uh, meeting for the um, inclusive employment aspect of things, I don't believe kicks off until April, um, but I'm very excited uh, to sink my teeth into it and see what I can do. Oh, very cool. Congratulations on being named to that role, Marco. You're going to do an excellent, excellent job. Before you get out of here, you want to shout out a couple of happenings to put on people's radar. So what are the details on the second Second annual accessibility conference on technology. Yeah, so uh, the Accessible uh, Conference of Technology is really incredible. Uh, we're actually putting it on tomorrow uh, morning, Pacific time, 10 a.m. Uh, to 12 p.m. It's uh, that specific, uh, uh, and it's live. Um, you can tune in uh, via uh, Zoom, and uh, the information is at like.ventures. Uh, that's the website. And it's really cool because we're having a split panel of uh, entrepreneurs um, who are working in innovative technologies towards people with disabilities and individuals from the venture capital world who potentially have interest in investment, investing in products and services that enhance and benefit the lives of people with disabilities. Uh, I'm the chair uh, of this event. Uh, we held it last year virtually as well with an amazing turnout. Uh, we had three panels last year, but we found that the VC panel and the actual investment of people with uh, disabilities was the most uh, was the most asked for. So that was great. And then the second um, thing I want to talk about is the Accessible Professionals Networking Conference put on by the Rick Hansen Foundation, and that's happening March first and second. Uh, you can get tickets for that um, on at rickhansen.com, and that's actually happening in person in Richmond, BC, but also virtually as well. And uh, that event is uh, for accessibility professionals and those who are interested in accessibility in general. And it's gonna feature everything from our chief accessibility officer, Stephanie Cadu. You're gonna have an, a fantastic MC in myself. Hopefully I'm gonna keep the, the party going <laughs> for the two days. Uh, I do call it the uh, conference for rock stars in the accessibility space. And I truly mean that. And there's gonna be hundreds of voices from accessibility professionals around the world who talk about what's working for them, what isn't necessarily working, how can we improve the built environment and some incre incredible, incredible sessions around accessibility um, with some fantastic conversations to be had. So anyone who's interested, I encourage you to go over to rickhansen.com, um, check out the conference details, get yourself some tickets. If you can join us in person, uh, I can't wait to say hello to you and, uh, and uh, talk a little bit more about things that really matter to us. Marco Pasqua, a man who stays very, very busy. Have a great day, Marco. Thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. I love it, Dave. Thanks so much. That's Marco Pasqua, the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. You can follow Marco on Twitter.
at Marco Pasqua, Pas Marco underscore Pasqua, Marco underscore Pasqua, and Pasqua is spelled P-A-S-Q-U-A, at Marco underscore Pasqua. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti gives her critique and thoughts in a review of Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami the academy awards are one month away you may be playing a little bit of catch up trying to catch up on the nominated films guillermo del toro's pinocchio has been nominated for best animated picture here is a clip from the trailer from my many wanderings on this earth a cricket opens a book and holds a quill pen I had so much to say about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons. Geppetto paints his son's grave. And about loss and love. From Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro. I've learned that there are old spirits who rarely involve themselves in the human world, but on occasion they do. He chops down a tree under a stormy sky. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but... <laughs> You don't. A story. In his wood shop, Geppetto builds a puppet. Of the wooden boy. The puppet and Geppetto wave at each other. Caption, love. Where am I? I feel as though you've been here before. We'll give you life. The wooden boy with the borrowed soul. A blue fairy looms over the puppet. Be his son. Fill his days with light. We shall call you Pinocchio. So that's a clip from the trailer of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Amy Amanti is here to offer up her thoughts in a review of the movie. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Uh, Amy, to say that Guillermo del Toro has his own way of telling stories would be an understatement. How does how does he take how does his take compare to say the original story of the classic Disney film? Well, you know, uh, it's a great question, Dave, and I had to do a little bit of research on this one because I actually have never seen the original Pinocchio. Oh, we made you watch two movies for that. this film review. Well, I probably should have watched all three because there's the 1940s Disney released uh, classic, and then there's the 2002, I think, remake with Tom Hanks uh, in Pinocchio. Update, oh, I'd forgotten. Updated. I'd, I'd forgotten yeah, I did that, yeah, right? And then this now new version by Guillermo del Toro. So I pulled out some of the some of the most significant um uh, what i found to be some of the most significant uh contrasts of these i guess two slash three different films um and just so that folks have an awareness like this has been a long time passion program uh, project for del toro who has uh, always considered that the character of pinocchio has um 
that he's had a deep personal connection with this particular character. So he feels very bonded to this character, which is why this is kind of a love passion project for Guillermo del Toro. So uh, this one is loosely based on the 1883 Italian novel called The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but uh, it's, uh, that's Carl Collodi. Um, and so... I think in the traditional Pinocchio, what we see is a happy-go-lucky wooden boy, wooden wooden puppet that wants to be a real boy, right? That's uh, mm -hmm. uh, he, he's he's uh, kind-hearted and spirited and and lovely. That's not the Pinocchio we see in this particular film. Uh, this particular film has Pinocchio created. Uh, in a moment of drunken rage based on loss. So not created by a toy maker that's just tinkering and lonely, right? Um, so there's a, a, a Pinocchio that is created out of out of extreme loss. Um, this movie is also set in fascist Italy. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on around wartime and some Mussolini background and the concept of Pinocchio perhaps being used as propaganda um, and or perhaps being used in the war effort because he is uh He's immortal. He's, he's not human. Mm. He's not going to die, right? Um, that he's a, bo uh, a wooden puppet, a wooden boy that uh, is mischievous, a bit defiant, makes a lot of mistakes. So we get to watch those mistakes through our character, um, which is actually quite a, a wonderful experience. But all in all, I think one of the really biggest, uh, I thought the biggest contrast for me is that Pinocchio in this film has no interest in being a real boy. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Right. And so um, it, it's, he's on a different journey, whereas traditionally we, you know, Pinocchio was wanting to be a real boy. Um, so this is, is a bit of a different journey for this Pinocchio. So the animation's a little bit different in this one as well, whereas the original Pinocchio, I'm not going to worry about the Tom Hanks version. I'll talk about the yeah. one that everybody knows and loves, was, <laughs> more, was more of what you'd call a classical Disney animation, whereas yeah. this was using stop motion. Now, that's obviously a very aesthetic question, but what mm -hmm. do you think the use of stop motion meant to the way the story was told? Well, it's certainly a very updated way of doing this. So we see a lot of stop motion coming from, I mean, lots and lots of different um, directors and producers. But I think of like Tim Burton doing The Nightmare Before Christmas, that kind of mm -hmm. uh, that kind of genre, right? So like animation is when you're drawing on a page and you draw several movements on several pages. And so there can be multiple tweaks of movements. Uh, in the 1940s classics, they didn't have as many tweaks in the movements. The drawing wasn't as sophisticated, right? Um, but they call those like the micro expressions. And as you flip the pages quickly, it makes it look like something is moving. Mm -hmm. um, so in stop motion, we've got hundreds of artists that are working. And this is actually a, a, a filmmaking tradition that's more than 100 years old, which I didn't realize. Uh, and basically what they're doing is they have a, a whole set and a whole bunch of puppets, animatronic puppets, puppets that are made in different ways that are... Um, various sizes. So think like the size of 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 a, I don't know, uh, the little peg that you use when you play um, Monopoly. Yeah, like a Monopoly. But yeah, a little tiny peg like that. Yeah, I was thinking of the the card game. Uh, but it's, I'm losing my cribbage. Oh, cribbage, so cribbage. Yeah. Yeah, little little tiny tiny held in your fingers up to the size of of. Uh, larger than a six foot man, probably your size, Dave, like like tall and and large. And 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 they do this because I prefer to say large and in charge. 
Large and in charge, I love it. Well, then I, I'll be your large and in charge sidekick. I like that too. But like these, you know, they had a picture of Guillermo del Toro next to one of these puppets, and it was like the, this face was the size of a huge pumpkin, right? Like huge. Um, and that's so that you can get those micro details, right? If you're working on a really tiny puppet, um, like the size of the cricket that they would use to sit on Pinocchio's shoulder often is the little si peg-sized one. But if you need to change the facial expressions on Pinocchio, you better be able to get close and clear on those, so it has to be really large. So the sets and the puppets are varying different mm. sizes, and they literally, so to make a smile, they move the smile a little tiny, millimeter by millimeter by millimeter, and then they play it all together really, really fast and it looks like movement and the movement's yeah. a little janky but it's all part of the visual aesthetic it like it is tedious tedious oh. work to do it takes so much time but you mentioned this is something that guillermo del toro had wanted to make for years and years and years so why wouldn't you make it more tedious and more punishing like like what says i love what i'm doing more than doing it in the most tedious way possible yeah and it took over a thousand days to oh shoot. my gosh just, that's just a shoot right whereas a typical film you can you can shoot in three weeks the hallmark hallmark movie they do it in three days three days yeah so i mean if you're doing anything that's got cgi you're likely doing three weeks or over a couple of months but that's not like your actors aren't working solidly that time so a thousand days for all of these uh, and so that doesn't even talk about like the making of the puppets and all the bringing together of all the cast and everything Mm. Uh, Amy, Ewan McGregor is the voice that was doing the narration on the trailer, uh, is yeah. going to be the narrator of the film. I thought it was an yeah. Expedia commercial for a second. Turns out it I wasn't. I did too. <laughs> um, what did you make of Ewan McGregor's performance? I'm a big fan of Ewan McGregor. Yeah, so like, am I. Truly, truly. Um, way back in the days when he did The Pillow Book and... Uh, Train spotting is a big fan of Ewan McGregor. Um, a, li a life less ordinary. Don't sleep on a life oh, less ordinary. Yes. Cameron Diaz, amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, he's he's got had some really fantastic credits. Uh, Expedia notwithstanding, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, but uh, but his voice is quite iconic, and I really love it when they um, give actors the autonomy to use their own accents, as opposed to sometimes where they have to put on an English accent or an American accent, right? Who says that the cricket in Italy can't be Scottish? <laughs> like, what's the matter with that? Um, in fact, you know, some of the other characters are voiced. They have, like, Pinocchio has a British accent, and he's in Italy, so I don't get it. But uh, we tend to put a lot of British accents on our characters in order to make them be, like, the universal character. Um, so loved Ewan McGregor in this. Um, he plays the cricket, who's also our narrator. And uh, just another notables in this, Tilda Swinton um, was the voice of one of the wood sprites. So this uh, brings the Pinocchio puppet to life. And Kate Blanchett is uh, Spastatura, which is another sort of oh, wow. character that appears in the show. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of real notable names. Amy, you mentioned the visual aesthetic that went along with stop motion. It's also fair to say that in the way Del Toro makes movies, they are often visually stunning movies. Mm -hmm. That tends to be his claim to fame, that he makes movies that don't look like anybody else's movies. So audio description on this one is vitally important. How did it hold up? Well, the audio description allows me to know what's happening from moment to moment, which of course is important. It doesn't let me in on the uh, secrets of stop motion or the aesthetics of stop motion. Yeah, like the magic, uh, right? Like the, the, the thing that makes, that makes the film magical. Yeah, there's one moment at the very top, I think when they referred to, so uh, Geppetto is, is uh, I think 
visiting the grave of his son that dies, right? It's set in a World War era. So his son that dies at the beginning of the film. Uh, and and he puts his hand on, on the grave and they they refer to his hand as a gnarled hand. And I thought, ooh, that's juicy. I can like gnarled, thanks. I love that. And then like that was kind of the end of it. Mm. And, I, and I really would have appreciated some more of the uh, the pointing out of the aesthetics because it is so integral to the world, especially when, you know, our entry point into Pinocchio is often, you know, the 1940s animated version, right? Which has has none of this uh, type of aesthetic, not a single bit. Mm. Amy, we're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 97%, which in this day and age is just a wild, yep. wild rating, like very popular. We're looking at an Academy Award nomination. This was also a movie that had a ton of buzz going into it. It's funny, I remember the buzz going in, and then when it got released, I don't remember the buzz peaking at all. It really speaks to the death of monoculture, but that's a different conversation yeah. for a different day. <laughs> but what do you think? 97%? Oscar nomination, where does this rank, where does this film rank for you as you evaluate it as a reviewer and a film goer? Yeah, I mean, I gave it a, a 9 out of 10. I thought it was really strong. There are a couple of things about it, Dave, I have to admit that I'm a little uncomfortable about. But again, you know, as I say a lot uh, when I talk to you about film and when I talk to others about film and theater, is that often good art, good film, good theater makes us uncomfortable. Mm in the right ways like it's asking us to be it's asking us questions that can be uncomfortable and there was something about the genre of of this being set in fascist italy uh and then being like them actually having mussolini why that choice now of course the choice is because it's based on the novel mm -hmm. uh, but i've not met i've not read the 1883 novel to know exactly how specific some of the details are that translated into this film but it is it is quite dark in that sense and you know there are things in that film that are are, um, uh, a recall to history. Yeah. Uh, and so a part of me is like, okay, I get that. And a part of me is like, hmm, we couldn't have just made this on like a, in a make-believe place, in yeah. a make-believe land, del, right? del, the make-believe war. Del Toro likes doing that, though. If you think about Pan's yeah. Labyrinth was set in fascist Spain during World War II, if yeah. you think about The Shape of Water being set in the Cold War, he, he really has a fascination with political... The, the overarching political factors that influence a story. He clearly has a fascination with putting these stories in the real world. Yeah, it's the container that he often uses, for sure, um, which I think is why you can, you can understand why he fell in love with the original text, right? Is because it, and, and if he has such a um, relationship with the character Pinocchio, one could maybe go as far as to say, because he experienced Pinocchio, as, uh, this text as a small child himself, that it might be uh, the the foreground of all of the work that he's created, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Like it really could have been the spark to what he wanted to do as a filmmaker uh, in using this container. So I find that super admirable. I also find it, um, I don't want to say a little predictable, but a little predictable. Um, <laughs> and I just, I just, with, I am unsettled a little bit by that uh, subject matter being ingrained in this type of film, but I think unsettled in a good way. Right, like it's still to this day, it's making me ask questions about the film. Amy, about oh sorry, everything. sorry, I didn't, I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. But, no, but I'm good. But I want to wrap up. I want to wrap up on this thought. We just mentioned how important the visual aesthetic is in a movie like yeah. this. Do you know what the number one movie at the North American box office was this past weekend? No, I'm going to guess it was Avatar, but I really don't know. No, Avatar came in at number two. 
But when we're talking visual aesthetic here, oh. Magic Mike's Last Dance. So uh, Channing Tatum taking his clothes off one more time for everybody's enjoyment. I don't know how you DV that. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, my, my friends and I always joke about why we can't go to uh, the dance clubs and have touch tours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's obviously a, a facetious joke. I'll be honest with you, I never saw Magic Mike 1 because it's just not the type of movie that generally appeals to me. <laughs> I, want, I, want a little bit more of, I want a little bit more of artistry in my films. Well, you're uh, going to Montreal this weekend, Amy. I can uh, send you a link and uh, about, a, about a club where you can <laughs> but, do more than just But no touch to her promise? No guarantee? Well, no, no, you have to pay for it. <laughs> Amy, have a great That's day. That's not accessible, Dave. Okay. <laughs> Amy, have a great day. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. That's Amy Amanti with a review of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. The film is rated PG, and it's available for you to stream on Netflix. Speaking of Netflix, in the next hour of the show, Mark Flalo is going to talk about how they're cracking down on account sharing. So if you want to watch it, you might need to make a move on that one real quick. Coming up after the break, Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.